0: On this episode of The King Twire.
1: the idea that we start a little earlier in getting our students acclimated to IR is going to be so important. And it already has, I think, made a difference. I think now students have a much clearer sense of what it is at a much earlier stage than maybe I did. I think it makes a big difference in terms of getting more involvement in our profession.
0: Welcome to The King Twi'er, the interventional radiology podcast from this IR's IR quarterly magazine. You can learn more at our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. And this episode is brought to you by BD. Learn more at bardpv.com. In this episode, Wire host Ron Krakow speaks with interventional radiologist Derek West about the importance of addressing healthcare disparities, educating med students on the promise of IR, and his ongoing research in cancer treatment. Well, thank you again so much for being here. And, you know, I'm looking back at 2020, and I think some of the most important things we covered that year were COVID, obviously, but also diversity and inclusion. Now here we are in the early part of 2021, and you know those are still the two biggest issues. And I'm really glad to have you here to talk about diversity inclusion. I know you do uh, a bit of work in oncology and electroporation, if I'm not mistaken. How did you get in IR? What sort of ticked the boxes for you in med school? I'm originally from Chicago and
1: uh, born and raised there. And I went to undergrad at University of Illinois and um, did medical school at Loyola in Chicago. And while I was there, I went through a bunch of the different specialties, but nothing really moved me. And, and this is sort of speaks to some of how our uh, medical students are acclimated to radiology, at least at that time. Was uh-huh. the, you know, I didn't see radiology until my fourth year. And it was during a rotation there that I went through it. And even radiology by itself wasn't moving me until mm. I walked into IR. Really, at the time, I didn't actually know IR even existed. And so I went into a room and they were like, oh, we're doing a case. Would you like to come in and see? I was like, sure. Yeah. And they were putting stents in arteries and
0: veins. Yeah. And it was like,
1: what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I had just come out of a room where I was reading chest x-rays. And again, not, yeah. that's not a knock on radiology as much as was, sure. my interest it wasn't terribly high. And I was like, well, it was kind of moving me a little bit. And the other thing that really hit me was that uh, the people who, who were there were very kind. And they were very open to what IR is and explaining it to me. When I got to Northwestern, I remember our rotation as a a resident, where you you had some real insight into what was being done and how it was done within the first two days of my rotation, like, this is it. It was just the best. It was so good to see how deeply you could get involved in the care of patients and be a full physician, clinician, scientist if you wanted to be, it was all in there. And so that's what really brought me to interventional radiology. After finishing residency, I've worked in uh, academics and in private practice and then decided that I wanted to go back and try to get back into a little more translational research. Dr. Reed Omri, who was at Northwestern at the time, he was an invention researcher and had significant knowledge in it. So he helped me to join into an R25 program that allowed me to take two years and develop research skills and translational research, and specifically looking at pancreatic adenocarcinoma Mm. as relates to electroporation. That really gave me an opportunity to get a good look, not only at pancreatic cancer, which at the time... Uh, And even now, frankly, is not one of the uh, cancers that we look very closely at, but Mm -hmm. also allowed me to look at a different uh, treatment algorithm for it. And so I was able to look at and learn how to use uh, animals to start translational research, and eventually led to me being able to get a grant from the Society of Interventional Radiology for doing some animal research, which I really appreciated. And so that's sort of how I got into electroporation and the benefits of electroporation and really looking, being able to look at it beyond even and pancreatic cancer and looking at other ways of using it specifically for other types of cancers that we more commonly see, such as liver cancers that we tend to treat more of. And then looking within the liver itself and looking at other things other than HCC, being able to look at uh, other cancers as well that are in
0: the liver that's an amazing journey. Some of that really resonates with me because I had a similar experience in medical school. And I loved your description of walking into the room and you're like, wow, you know, I had that same kind of experience. And, you know, maybe many of us have. I'd like to point out
1: that I think IR, specifically SIR, is trying to change that The idea that we start a little earlier and getting our students acclimated to IR is going to be so important. And and that already has, I think, made a difference. I think now when you say IR, students have a much clearer sense of what it is at a, a much earlier stage than maybe I did. I think it makes a big difference in terms of getting more involvement in our profession.
0: What I'm curious about in terms of sort of SIR getting the name out, the IR name out there, with respect to inclusion and diversity, it's been said by some that IR, you know, was a quote unquote old boys network or old boys club. Did you encounter barriers or anything? And what do you see happening now in society that I hope is different?
1: Overall, we're a little bit behind the eight ball in terms of moving our diversity in healthcare forward in SIR. But to be fair about it, I don't think it's related necessarily to it being anything heavily based on an old boys network. It just okay. is what a lot of medicine was and mm. some specialties moved a little faster in that than others you know for example uh, when we talk about healthcare disparities we're now getting towards things like that getting more towards diversity and inclusion there are the specialties that are about 5 to 10 years ahead but mm-hmm. to say that they're 5 to 10 years ahead doesn't mean that they're that much further ahead of us it just means that they started earlier And also, I would argue that some of that is just related to what IR was versus where it's going. Okay. Or in other words, I think as more and more IRs are clinically oriented, or in other words, we're much more in the tumor boards. We're much more Mm -hmm. in seeing our patients. We're much more in the primary focus of taking care of patients, even if it doesn't necessarily lead to an IR procedure, we're very attuned to things that maybe we weren't before. And I think that those are the things that kind of push us a little bit more to understanding the importance of DNI and healthcare disparity as it relates to interventional radiology in general. So for example, I only bring this up in the context of looking at women's health, for example. If we look at women's health and OBGYN how they've been able to pick up on different things that have led to disparities based on your age, based on your race, based on your, how you define yourself uh, in gender, they've kind of already moved towards that in large part because that's kind of the focus of their system. They look at those patients and they see them constantly. Whereas we initially, anyway, started a little further out from that. But as we move mm. forward, on that, it becomes more and more apparent that if we want to be taken as full physicians, clinicians, taking care of patients, and not just people who just do procedures, we're obligated to know these things. And so I mm. think that's where
0: lives. That to me is an absolutely fascinating point and it'd be fascinating to look at how that has played out that we as a specialty had to become more clinical if we wanted to survive and that a, a really awesome side effect of that is that we've become more inclusive. Absolutely. Um, do you see this continuing for us? You said, you know, we're maybe five years behind and, and I get the context in which you say that, you know, what about five years from now? What do, what do you see in that regard?
1: We're already heading towards where I think it's going to be going, which
0: is that just
1: the knowledge base alone is going to change how we view ourselves in our practice. So it's going to open our eyes to things like who has access to procedures that we normally do. Again, case in point, when we look at dialysis patients that yep. we take care of. Who has access to IR dialysis? You know, there are a lot of studies that are coming out now from the Society of Interventional Radio, from interventionalists, that point out that your access to an interventionalist is often limited by what part of the city you live in, or mm-hmm. if you live in a city at all. People who live in rural communities have a difficult time getting access to interventional radiologists. And again, this is not a fault of ours as much as it is. This is something that we're going to have to address. And in the next five years, we're going to have to start looking at that. And we will start looking at that. I've already seen that happening. So a lot of interventionalists aren't really acclimated to this. And and it's it's not a knock on anyone. This is what I'm saying when we're five to 10 years behind where others have moved it. It's only because we're just now starting, but I think we're catching up pretty quickly on that. So when we look at things like HCC, which we're we're moving way ahead in, which is wonderful, but is everybody getting access to Y90? If you're not a patient who has the means to have it paid for you are limited to what you can get from an IR. Is that yeah. fair or right? You right? Know, and those are the types of things that we're only just now starting to address, but in the next five years, we'll have a much stronger sense of what it is we need to do to make sure that we're caring for all of our patients. So how can we make it so that everybody gets access to us?
0: You know, we've seen that, unfortunately, with COVID, for example, that there are such healthcare disparities among uh, races and social economic classes where, depending upon your race, and as you said, what part of town you're located in, you and your community may be devastated by COVID. And you can, unfortunately, insert almost any disease there, ESRD, cancer, peripheral arterial disease. I mean, there's so many things where people are presenting at the absolute end stage as compared to other communities, uh, be it on a racial or social economic basis, where they do have the benefit of the Y90 or the vaccine or what have you. And, and I think that's a great point that you make that we're, you know, we're sort of functioning in this uh, fishbowl here together as we all try to try to change things, uh, hopefully. So it's good to hear that you think we'll see some changes down the road. And one last point on this, if you don't mind, do you feel that you face challenges that another IR didn't face? or
1: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I I do, I you know, but with that having been said, I don't think that this is any different than anything that we all face. But while I don't think overall there's any hard negativity to it, the idea that SIR initially seemed to be a good old boy system was probably true. I don't think anybody walked through meaning to be exclusive mm-hmm. in any way. But when I say good old boys, what I'm really trying to get at is I think like any other specialty or any other job, there are people who get trained in places that are top, that are considered top notch, and then there's some that are considered. Uh, they went to different ones. Uh, if you went to a different place that didn't have as many I.R.s that are publishing and famous, then you're in a, a lower tier and so forth. And so, what I found is that there tended to be some favoritism, and it wasn't necessarily easy to get involved in S.I.R. because of that. That the setup of S.I.R. is there are some things about it that I think could stand some improvement, but mm-hmm. again, in the next five 10 years, I'm sure it will. One of which is uh, making sure that everybody feels included in it. And there's a significant number of IRs, frankly, me included, that at the very beginning of this, it was kind of hard to get involved. And again, it was nothing overt. Right. Me. It was just some people liked some people better than other people. It was just a little bit much of that. But I do think that SR not only has changed that, but continues to work towards that as we really look at moving our focus uh, away from just being technicians to really mm-hmm. being true physicians. I think there's a complete understanding that everybody has to be involved and feel involved and be able to give their voices in ways that maybe we weren't able to before. Again, while I'm talking about this from a diversity inclusion standpoint, I'm really talking about it for everyone. So like, that everyone, regardless of where you were trained and how you, you, have a voice and you can speak because everybody has a value here.
0: That point of driving clinical practice, opening the eyes of all of us to more inclusion, I think, is really a great one. And, you know, and I think back to my days in med school and uh, I didn't have barriers, but I felt like I was absolutely completely overwhelmed with training yeah. and learning yeah. everything and patients and boards and this and that. I oh, can't wow. imagine having had more to deal with than that. And I think it's incumbent upon folks like me, quite honestly, to help open those doors and smooth those pathways because it's hard enough to train and get good at what you're doing without anything else. Getting back a little bit into your research work, how has that grown with the electroporation work, for example? I I mean, you mentioned specifically Y90, you know, that folks may not have access to that. I know you mentioned animal studies, but are there any human trials or anything going on that are inclusive and so on? Sure. I got a second small grant that's
1: looking at using electroporation with chemotherapy treatment for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Part of the problem with pancreatic adenocarcinoma is that by the time you find it, people are already at a stage three point where surgery is not an option for them. Mm. The tumor has already invaded into the SMA uh, or, the, or into other parts that make it virtually impossible to operate. And the problem is also that the uptake of the chemotherapeutic agent is so hard to get into the tumors. The tumors themselves are very dense and it's, you know, you can run a catheter into them and do injections. And, and actually now there are other procedures that may be available to increase the amount of pressure that you can put into a vessel that's feeding a tumor to get more to go in. But mm-hmm. unlike perhaps the HCCs where you can see very clearly where the artery is, and this is what makes Y90 and all of those work so well, is because you can get a catheter into them, inject in, you can see the artery, you pump it in there, and you know it's hitting the artery, and you're very happy with mm. pancreatic little harder for that. So what I have suggested is to increase the amount of tumor that we can destroy with electroporation for stage threes with the ultimate goal of downstaging them to stage two if we can, because as Mm. we know, from stage three to stage two is the difference between non-surgical and surgical. And surgical is the best option for a lot of patients. Does this work a lot? No, but that's sort of our goal and the way we want to move it. But what this does is by using electroporation with a dose of chemotherapy, the electroporation does something to the pores of the cells. While you're electroporating, the sides of the cells open up and they allow the influx of things that are outside of the cell that you wouldn't normally not have been able to give. And so the idea is perhaps to increase the efficacy of the chemotherapeutic agent that you've given the patient by using electroporation. Now, electroporation, when you put the needles in, Just adjacent to these, you have it at a a rate where it destroys the tumors. But if you get further and further out from it, you have something called reversible electroporation, which means that the tumors don't die necessarily but they do have an increased ability to uptake the chemotherapeutic agent that's there. The idea being that if you've got something that's big enough that it's taken up the uh, celiac or the SMA, that perhaps you can hit enough of it to get it off of there and move the patient to, at a bare minimum, to increase the efficacy of these treatments and increase their lifespans, but ultimately, really, to turn what is currently a deadly disease into something that perhaps we can make more chronic Mm. uh, at at a bare minimum. Even if if we can't operate on them, we've destroyed the tumor in a way that makes it something that we
0: can treat and follow them. That would be fantastic. It is such a devastating uh, diagnosis, unfortunately, for the reasons you mentioned. So are you doing irreversible electroporation as well? So I'm doing irreversible electroporation. Mm, You are? Okay. But the idea
1: behind the irreversible electroporation is to take advantage of the reversible part of it as well. I see. Okay. So when I do this, I'm doing it into tumors that are in the pancreas and stage three patients. And if I am able to get them into the protocol, I can inject them with a chemotherapeutic agent at the time that I'm doing the electroporation. Because this is the other sort of thing with uh, electroporation, which is that it only works when it's on. Oh, okay. And as long as you're zipping, those pores open. But the minute you turn the zip off, if you're in the reversible zone,
0: the tumors in the reversible zone close back up. So the idea is to take advantage of that. You have a catheter parked there as well, intraarterially, delivering the chemo or is it peripheral chemo? It's peripheral chemo. And that's a very good point
1: because things have changed. When I was first doing this, I would just simply have the medical oncologist come in, and when it was time, when I'm ready to do the activation, they would inject in the uh, chemotherapeutic agent. And it depended on the chemotherapeutic agent, I might add, because some of them had to be injected in a different way than others. But nonetheless, I wasn't necessarily one uh, responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Now, and I haven't combined these yet, but I do think that this is where it's gonna head, is that there are catheters that are available now, where they have balloons on both ends of it, and then the catheter that's within the balloons that you put next to the arteries that are feeding the tumor can pump at a higher rate, so that yeah. it can give more in at that time. And whether I'm the one that gives it or the oncologist gives it, right now as these procedures go, either of us can do it, and so mm-hmm. and. and an ideal setting, that alone should help, by the way, but in an ideal setting, if I can do that with electroporation, we should get even more efficacy than we do with systemic. Because part of the benefit of combining these two is that perhaps we don't need to give as much chemotherapeutic agent systemically, because they're in half of your problem. Although I will admit that I do think there is a role for systemic treatment, even in stage three. Because stage three, if you don't watch out, can go to stage four. Okay, so I see. Sure
0: okay, you so you want to keep it from metastasizing and, and so on. Wow, absolutely fascinating. This is this is great. I I want to have you on weekly <laughs> at this point. You've got so much information to tell us, but really you know, a ton to think about impacting, I think, multiple ways in which we practice and, you know, really a lot to think about in terms of our specialty. So thank you. I do want to leave you with one more question, though, uh, a question we ask of all of our guests. If you weren't an interventional radiologist, what would you do or what would you be and why? That's an
1: interesting one. Off the top of my head, I'm actually not sure. The truth is, as as I sort of stated before, I lucked up on IR. Yeah, I, I really did because IR hit me so well that it shifted my focus away from worrying about trying to find anything to how do I get into that. I, I did like surgery. I I, think okay. that I really enjoyed uh, surgery and all the different facets of surgery. So it might have been something in that transplant surgery. I thought was mm. a lot of. It was very cool. I also thought burn surgery was really cool stuff.
0: be no, completely honest, I'm really not sure. <laughs> that's, that's great. I mean, it really is for you shows. You know, you were meant to be an IR. That's it. And appreciate uh, having you here. Do be safe and continue all the great work you're doing. And thanks again. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. That was Dr. Derek West talking about his work in electroporation We thank Dr. West for his time, BD for supporting this episode, and you for listening to Deep Choir. Our host is Dr. Warren Craycock. Our editor is Dr. Jamie Shaw. Our manager is Dr. Jason Fisher. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts or ideas for us, drop us a line at irq.surweb.org.